Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when Solitaire for Tea was promoted as very funny, the best British movie since Four Weddings and a Funeral. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, no one has ever seemed to, is film studies lecturer, Melanie Williams. Melanie, what are you up to? Where can we find it? I've got a book out on 1960s British cinema. That's happened most recently. So that's called Transformation and Tradition in 1960s British Cinema. It's much too expensive because academic books usually are. (laughs) And I'm doing some stuff for a couple of Blu-ray releases of films, uh, The Go-Between and The System. So that's what I'm occupied on at the moment. And they've not asked you to do Solitaire for two yet? Sadly not. No, I'm I'm waiting for the call. (laughs) Well, nobody's asked me to do the booklet for your first choice and the fact that so few people seem to remember it might be an explanation as to why it's not come out on dvd let's just hear a clip of the great man in action you know people think hotel living is very glamorous and it's not it's not at all first place is detrimental to your social life see women do not like to go to hotel rooms they do not and i treat the hotel room as my home i mean if i didn't i'd go stark raving crazy so being a nice host sometimes i'll invite a woman to my home for a drink doesn't always mean something's going to happen Oh, might be in the back of my mind, but you know. <laughs> I'm not one to force an issue. If it happens, it happens. But see, women, they don't like to come to hotel rooms. Because for one thing, you gotta walk through the hotel lobby, right? Now, if you walk a woman through a hotel lobby, people automatically assume the decision has been made. <laughs> Everybody assumes that. The guy behind the desk that gives me the key. See the old porter behind a paper in a corner? <laughs> I always feel like I'm going on a mission for these guys. Damn, I better do good. I gotta report back tomorrow. Okay, if you're of a certain age and you're allowed to stay up to watch something, that's somebody whose voice you will know right away. But if you didn't, you probably have no idea who it is. Melody, Kelly Monteith. Before there was Seinfeld and before there was observational comedy and cool American comedians, Kelly Monteith is Canadian, I think. It's a sort of early outlier of a lot of those things. And he did this interesting show where he was a stand-up comedian and you'd get sketches interwoven into the show, but he'd also would be kind of about his life. And it was all very kind of self-reflexive and not that you'd call it that at the time. Something like not the nine o'clock news gets a lot more attention. But and, and this is clearly a bit less satirical, but I, it was a program that I, I really enjoyed. I was kind of fascinated by this strange sitcom world. But I remember there was one particular sketch about him pretending to be a private detective and finding things on boxes of matches. And that was, you know, a really brilliant piece of, like, pastiche. And poor old Kelly Monteith, I don't think he gets the credit he's due, really. No, nobody really talks about him much now. So when we're thinking about, you know, people winking to the camera and sitcoms being self-reflexive and all that kind of, you know, flea bag stuff, yeah. Kelly was there first. Absolutely. Well, I did get kind of piled on on Twitter for pointing out that Fleabag didn't invent some things that Kelly Monteith was doing in the 70s. So <laughs> it is really interesting to be forgotten about because it was a very ahead of its time show in a lot of ways. Because for anyone who's never seen it, it wasn't really a sketch show and it wasn't really a sitcom. As you say, the idea was that it was about his life as a stand-up. 
and it would be about mm. a theme in his life with interconnected sketches but he would sometimes commentate on them and how well they'd gone to the audience and you know didn't quite nail it in that one and that sort of thing and the other thing was <laughs> that as a character in it his wife very clearly based on his real life wife was played by Gabrielle Drake and I think people mm. thought she actually was his real wife but he got divorced during I mean there were six series of this on the BBC <laughs> Oh, for some reason, it, it doesn't occupy some massive time scale. Yeah, yeah that's... 79 to 84. And obviously, halfway through, he got divorced in real life. And it changed tack. It became about not just about stand up living in London, because that was the really odd thing, because he'd come over from America. Because I think he'd been on, I think it was a Des O'Connor show. And yeah, the producers yeah. were saying, Wow, you're really good. Have you got any ideas? And he said, Well, I've got this idea that they won't touch in America. And they were like, Well, we'll do it. <laughs> the time it really was a novelty for an Amer- well a canadian rather to be on our tv i think people just yeah. thought he was american because we didn't know any different then but you know, the idea of him no, being no. in bbc studios and television center yeah it became about him being a stand-up dating again after a divorce which yeah. gave it what i really remember about it was it was quite racy at some points in not yes. an unsuitable way reason. but yeah quite exciting to stay up and, and watch it because it was a bit saucy uh, yeah. but in a quite sophisticated kind of way rather than you know not that I'm knocking the two Ronnies but not that kind of sympathy more like grown up sophisticated kind of Woody Allen-ish before obviously Woody Allen not such a great flag to wave anymore but that kind of that kind of style I suppose well isn't it interesting that you know you had to beg permission to stay up to get to watch something that was far closer to what your real life would eventually turn out like and you didn't have to ask to watch the two Ronnies who I don't recall <laughs> much about adult dating being along the lines of them making rude comments to dancing girls in the middle of a song while they're both dressed as women as well that's not happened to me yeah. that often no I've been to a few restaurants like that <laughs> but yeah the more flamboyant end of the ronnie spectrum has not been my general experience no well i was going to mention you know you could do a two ronnie's dining experience based on what you just said but actually somebody should do a kelly monteith one where somebody comes around and critiques the waiter <laughs> it was yeah it was a sort of early introduction to the sort of idea of yeah meta comedy self-reflexive comedy but in a way that you know completely made sense to me as like a nine-year-old or whatever watching it I think he deserves a bigger play. I did, I did kind of look him up online to see, you know, what happened to Kelly Monteith? What does he do nowadays? And he kind of looks much older, <laughs> as we all do. Maybe, maybe there's a, a case to be made for him kind of bringing back the sitcom as a kind of older guy and seeing how that would work. Well, that was a great gag in the opening titles, was it? As I remember, it had a montage of stills of him, like, I think from real acting roles, playing, you know, a GI and so on, and looking quite rugged and handsome, and then it cuts to just a cheesy, smiling PR shot of him <laughs> as a stand-up. It was almost kind of saying, we hide behind our own constructs almost yeah i mean that idea of being a sort of jobbing performer and having to take on different roles gave it quite a lot of scope i suppose for parodying different types of film and different types of comedy and different types of television and i also remember the kind of layout of his flat that it had these kind of interesting balustrades and it was split level and the kitchen had like a breakfast bar which to seemed like the height of you know transatlantic sophistication to have a breakfast bar and a cool interesting life you know i think i think i've 
spent a great deal of my adult life trying to aspire to the conditions Kelly Monteith and failing miserably. Okay, well, we're moving on to your second choice, which is another kind of, I suppose, a TV contemporary Kelly Monteith, though he wouldn't be very flattered by it, who has been sort of sidelined for probably understandable reasons. Let's hear his theme music. to you like some tin cans falling down the stairs but there's an interesting story behind it which i'll come back to in a minute i remember this individual only too well melanie introduce us to aubrey aubrey was a kind of orange blob with a big nose and he was animated unsurprisingly he didn't exist in real life i can remember very little about him except that the title sequence seemed to involve him like sort of scooting around on a rainbow and it was one of those sort of short filler cartoons so before the news came on i remember it might be wrong but i remember it being an itv those programs that kind of came on before the six o'clock news on the bbc kind of get talked about much more I think what's happening on ITV doesn't get talked about no, as much. No, never does. And no. We, were, we were more of an ITV family than a BBC family. I deliberately thought I'm not going to seek it out on YouTube <laughs> and, and kind of, you know, revisit it. Because in some ways it's one of those things that's so ephemeral that you, you do wonder if you've actually imagined it. You've just kind of made up some random nonsense he, he was like a sort of um like a sort of chad like kilroy was here brought to life furnished with a lower body as well and it would just be these very short like five minute adventures of him doing quite banal stuff like sort of driving a car or getting slightly annoyed in some situation it's it's filler but it was i remember it as being quite kind of charming and colorful and sweet and ephemeral yeah i've no idea if it's out there or not or whether it has sort of vanished i mean it's nice to hear someone else say that it did actually happen because you do sort of think this is just some nonsense i've made up but clearly it's a real thing well there are some episodes out there and on the wikipedia page it laments the fact that so far only six episodes of aubrey have been released on dvd (laughs) (laughs) You you can't get happy families on dvd i wouldn't be crying about the rest of aubrey but i remember it really well but the reason i remember it is i don't remember much about the actual content of the episodes but the opening titles were i think he started driving the really flash car and bit by bit pieces fell off it and so this chase for some reason chasing a wheel along with it, hitting it with a stick because that's what you do when your car breaks down and that's become yeah. my go-to thing for people in reduced circumstances you know i do remember once saying in the review that stephen moffat was now chasing a wheel down the road with a stick because the bbc were cutting the budget for doctor who and behind it there was that racket that you just heard which apparently i can't find anything refuting this was by mike oldfield based on a tune that was i can't remember which of his albums it was but it is very similar and there are mike oldfield websites that state this as fact and nobody yeah. refuted this i can only assume that it's true because it was a sort of mad thing that he would do yeah. but for a synth wizard he was very off the wall 
so I can see exactly why you provide the theme music for a kind of orange blob with a big nose pushing a tyre down a street. Yeah, that, that makes that's very on brand, I think. Well, I only remember one episode of it, which, I mean, you say it was all sort of jolly fun and games. What I remember was he had the nightmare that he was being chased by tubers. Like, walking tubers were pursuing him. And then it ended with he woke up and, you know, it was all a dream. And the doorbell went, he opened the door and there was a tuber. Oh, so my goodness. It's kind of like the last episode of The Prisoner, but not. <laughs> I had no idea it was that dark. My memories of it, I mean, either I was out playing when that one was on or I've blotted it out. Or, God, no, that sounds a bit dead of night. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just some little, you know, friendly gonk wandering about having adventures well maybe he was in other episodes and that's why i remember that one and not the others <laughs> well yes yeah maybe it stood out because usually it was all quite tinsely and cheerful and this particular one was um maybe mike oldfield had some creative input into that one well my memory of when it was on was i mean somebody is bound to correct me on this now i'm sure but i remember it being part of that whole big children's itv relaunch in yeah, the yeah. early 80s where I think it was at first it was stranded as Watch It and eventually they got celebrities yeah. linking it like Marmalade Atkins Matthew Kelly yes. Roland Rapp but I seem to remember it was part of the first wave of that because before that ITV children's programs have been a mess there'd be yeah. maybe a drama maybe a cartoon then Little House on the Prairie or something. And I think the IBA actually stepped in and said, stop it, oh, do really? something constructive. But people, that yeah. never gets talked about. But the BBC relaunch a couple of years later, which is basically a copycat yeah, thing with the broom cupboards, yeah. people never shut up about that. And yet with the ITV one, you had like Murphy's Mob, Razzmatazz, things like that came in around them, which are programmes that people remember. Drama and Aubrey, Drama Rama was very, I think Drama Rama was the, you know, first on the list to say, look we are going to do something about this yeah <laughs> but yeah it, like you say the itv stuff doesn't really get talked about at all i mean i think i was more in the zone because at that point i was subscribing to look in so that whole itv relaunch got a lot of coverage in looking <laughs> understandably perfect publication for covering that so the idea of like a rolling host thing so each like month it would be a different person i do remember i think matthew kelly began it didn't he i remember marmalade atkins yeah as well and yeah to sort of try and give the whole thing a bit of like coherence and excitement i mean certainly that was what they were pushing quite heavily and looking at the time <laughs> well i can actually see a looking feature in my head now introducing it say you'll be able to meet a new friend monday to friday yeah. aubrey and then nothing of any value or content in the eight paragraphs below that just like yeah mentioning the name of the man who drew him and going blah 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 for the rest of the page which is very lucky. yeah and then say look out for the episode where he's kind of you know <laughs> faced with his worst existential fears yeah that's that'll be fun <laughs> Okay, well, weirdly, we're sticking with Orange Blobs for your next choice because I've actually found an advert for this and it is absolutely terrifying. I'm afraid you're going to have it in sound only, but I urge you, come onto YouTube, look at the visuals for this, and we'll talk about this in a minute. Oh, come in, Smithers. What is it? Speak up, boy. Uh, uh, oh. <clears throat> Orange juice. Motor. New Kellogg's Rise and Shine. Eh? English. And look at this, sir. No peel, no pips, and it's got vitamin C. Well, Smithers, I suppose this is it. What are you doing, sir? Thank you, Governor. Wife and three pips to support. Thank you. New Kellogg's Rise and Shine. 
now tastes as good as orange juice. Okay, from 1978, that was two terrifying people in orange costumes talking to each other about Kellogg's Rise and Shine. I think it's one of these phenomena where you can't quite believe that it happened and that it was like a desirable, aspirational thing. Think of how kind of normal orange juice is, cartoned orange juice, you know, in liquid form, as you'd expect it to be. In the late 70s, orange juice was much more aspirational, okay, just generally. You'd get offered a glass of it as a starter. I think we got a free sample. I can't imagine my mum actually sharing that money (laughs) for this disgusting stuff. Powdered orange juice that you mixed with water, and then it would turn into orange juice, supposedly. Although it's I think like when you get things from a vending machine and the, the blobs of powder don't properly disperse and dissolve into the liquid. It was the, the orange juice equivalent of that. So you'd get this sort of very space age kind of powdery thing and you'd put the correct amount of water in. And, and I remember thinking it was amazing and lovely, but I think it was probably just incredibly sugary and a bit of a novelty. Again, a bit like Kelly Monteith's breakfast. It's an exciting development in the world of breakfast. And funnily enough, I don't remember it becoming a permanent fixture on our shopping lists. I think this may have been an abortive experiment in powdered orange juice. But it was was a very odd thing, because on the one hand, thinking of like Dallas at the time, and they'd have big breakfasts on these big tables, and they'd always have like loads of orange juice in massive jugs and also it being a bit kind of sophisticated and and kind of european as well to have like fresh fruit juice and but also a bit space agey as well to have this kind of powdered dehydrated freeze-dried food so it it was sort of pressing lots of buttons (laughs) but when you actually tasted it it didn't deliver on its promise I i did not rise nor did i shine i'd love to taste some now I bet they don't make it, but I'd love to know what it tasted like. Well, I'm kind of picturing it as being like Barocca without the health benefits, but they definitely overreached themselves. Because at the end of the advert, there is a caption saying, also available in blackcurrant, lemon, pineapple and grapefruit. Now, the pineapple and grapefruit, I'm already curious enough about whether anyone bought them. Lemon! That is literally weak lemon drink. I wonder, actually, (laughs) I must ask Richard Herring, is that what inspired Simon Quinlan's weak lemon drink? Because I can only... It's a sort of thing that he would have coveted as well, Rise and Shine. But you're right, it, it, it does seem on face value sort of, you know, sophisticated-ish, despite that advert. I think it was yeah. still surfing the wave of the, you know, sort of stuff they had on the moon landings trip. And as I can tell you, as a very young boy around that time, that was still being sold to you with something aspirational. The fact that these yeah. men went to the moon and they came back and they had funny names. But that, you know, even then, that was less than a decade ago. And it seemed like a hundred years ago to me that these mm-hmm. men had landed. I was more interested in what was going on in the space shuttles now. So they, it was sort of flogging a dead horse. It's just the end of that phenomenon, I think. This is the very last gasp of it. But it's, it's like a hangover of wartime powdered egg as well. It's like some... <laughs> In some weird space in between, pleasing nobody and just tasting pretty rank. I wonder if the lemon one was some attempt at like a, a citron presse. You know? <laughs> 
But if you try and dilute it too far, then yes, you would end up with weak lemon drink. I think we can actually judge its level from the fact that I have got that advert paused on my screen at the moment, with the drink being decanted into a unreasonably sophisticated glass for this kind of thing. <laughs> but the colour is supposedly orange. Now, it's reminding me of somebody, of somebody's skin tone. <laughs> no, did it... Why are all actually? Why are all my choices bright orange? Is this some sort of political critique? I don't know. Well, I'm I'm imagining they just glug this stuff down at Trump Tower and it got into his brain. So that's, that's yeah, my isolation of it. Maybe Rise and Shine is to you know is to blame for all of this. Well, I dare say that you might have been drinking that free sample of Rise and Shine while you were reading your next choice, and I can't find a clip for this, so I'm just going to stick anything in here. <laughs> Shirley's World, the bizarre early 70s ITV series where Shirley MacLaine solved crimes in her spare time when she was a photographer. I I can't remember because we're not actually talking about that. We're talking about Patty's World. Melanie, even as somebody who saw a lot of girls' comics as a youngster with having so many sisters, I don't know what this is. My life stages have been measured by subscriptions to different comics. So from like Pippin and Twinkle through Looking through to girl magazine comic however you want to describe it which uh, was my kind of you know gateway into the whole hideous world of being an adolescent girl girl was like a step down from jackie which i moved to later on and two steps down from just 17 so it's quite kind of what you call a tween publication now but that word didn't really exist then now girl had all the usual things that you'd expect but it also had this comic strip now most of the time they moved to photo stories the kind of iconic stuff that you you know those love and romance stories this one was still drawn it was about this teenage girl called patty who had freckles <laughs> and this was like a major problem in her life she had dark hair she had freckles on her nose and she was just a kind of walking ball of anxiety so she's continually worried about all the things that teenage girls quite often worry about you know what what do i look like am i getting on okay does this boy fancy me so on and on it went this kind of saga of patty's quite tedious life <laughs> um, the style of it was kind of quite interesting typical comic style but it's it's thinking about it it's a bit like george and lynn in the sun you know that kind of comic style <laughs> yeah, i've just it's looked it up and yes yeah. which i was you know i was also reading at the time but with much less random nudity so it's kind of like an innocent version of george and lynn focused on this teenage girl and her quite tedious tribulations on and on it went every week the thing that i remember for some reason this subplot sticks in my head is that patty had an older sister who was much more sophisticated and was married to a man called kerry not kelly kerry and that in one episode he shaved his hair off as a joke and that patty's older sister was really upset and disturbed 
like this. I think, to be honest, by this point, they were kind of running out of stories slightly. And for some reason, this weird little storyline that probably went on for about five weeks um, stuck in my head. Very weird. I mean, I'd love to know who who wrote it, who drew it, what they were thinking. Because I, I think things like girl and Jackie there's a sort of established sense of what they're like and and the kind of content that they have but I think what gets underestimated sometimes is the sheer kind of bizarreness of of some of it you know there is all that sort of photo story true love stuff and you know fashion pages and beauty tips and and Kathy and Claire's problem page in Jackie but there's also all this quite like random mysterious you know who on earth is generating this odd content and what am I meant to do with it as a teenage girl reading it I can't remember any other storylines from Patty's world despite reading the comic strip every week but for some reason a, a kind of marital argument about shaving your hair off stayed in my mind so and then girl did a kind of rebrand relaunch and Patty's well disappeared, so I never got to find out what happened to poor old Patty, or her brother-in-law, or her older sister, or her mum and dad, because I think there were things to do with her mum and dad as well. Um, she was just completely expunged from the girl verse. Well, mentioning her mum and dad throws doubt on one of the two things I've managed to find out about it, because there's not much out there about Patty's world. I mean, the other thing is very much doubtful, but the first one says that the story started with her dad fell out of his office window celebrating the 1966 World Cup victory. So obviously he came back to life later, which might then make the second bit true, because there are allegations that I can't get to the bottom of, that at some point there was some kind of crossover with Captain Britain. What? I, I can't see at all. And um, I'd be really careful here, because again, recently I got in trouble on Twitter for saying if they do do a Captain Britain movie, which is being mooted at the moment, I don't want it to be Brian Braddock, I want it to be Pfizer Hussein, the brummy Muslim incarnation of Captain Britain. I want that on posters everywhere, and I got so much grief on Twitter for that. So I'm just going with the flow and saying, yeah, she probably was in Captain Britain, and it was probably brilliant, and he brought her dad back to life and said, yeah, we didn't win any matches after it, mate. That would have been the 10 of the strip, I think. I mean, I've already found out so much more about Patty's world than I did before, <laughs> focused as I was on the follicular end of the storyline. Um, it sort of felt a bit like a throwback, so I assumed it had been going on for quite a long time, but I didn't know it went kind of that far back. And Patty never grew up and never worked out how to sort out her freckles. Well, I mean, this has come up before on Looks Unfamiliar, but it is interesting how there were definitely designated girls' comics and boys' comics at that point, but yeah. Growing up in a very gender-mixed household, I can tell you that I read Misty, Ginty, and so on, as though they were just other comics. And similarly, boys' comics were read by the girls in the same way. I remember one of my sisters being obsessed with The Wolf of Kabul in Hotspur, which is a, a strip you couldn't bring back now. No. It just goes to show there wasn't that, the delineation that society thought there should have been between forms of entertainment. And I think in some ways, in some ways we've got past that now you know there's still a lot of work to do but generally entertainment is less gender targeted than it used to be and where would that leave poor old patty i don't know you know fussing over her freckles i think (laughs) i'd like to think that she kind of you know grew up embraced the freckles 
led a good life beyond the confines of Patty's world. But it was probably the kindest thing to do, actually, <laughs> to just <laughs> cancel this trip and get so rid. you wouldn't want to see, if she really was involved with Captain Britain, you wouldn't want to see a TV series, sort of Agent Carter style, with Patty battling freckles in the modern age. <laughs> <laughs> the problem of freckles. I don't know. Maybe, maybe they could kind of get. I don't know. Gemma Arterton. She could stick a few freckles on her nose and be the, you know, the new Patty. Okay. So just before we move on to your next choice, you wanted to bring up Mustard Mind from Jackie as well. Yeah. As I said, I, I read Girl and I read Jackie and I read Just Seventeen and you know whatever comics were kind of doing the round. And as I was saying that. You know, there's the photo stories and there's the stuff about, oh, does this boy like me? Oh, I've got spots, you know. But also quite random stuff. And and I feel like the 1980s Jackie was a bit different from the 70s Jackie that people tend to talk about. It had lots of, yeah, kind of weird, sort of a bit like some of Smash Hits, some of those kind of odd discourses. So they had this girl who used to write this column. I think she was called Gillian. And it would just be whatever kind of crap came into her head. So it had this... I just remember this subsection called Mustard Mind <laughs> used to pop up. I can't remember very much about the content of it, but I do remember that Gillian or whatever her name was, she was obsessed with Big Country. So she'd always try and put Big Country song titles into, you know, whatever she happened to be talking about. So you know, sort of odd obsessions with like Lloyd Cole, which is entirely understandable, and Big Country. <laughs> Just the kind of thing where, you, you know, you're you're at that age where, you, where you're, you're reading and you're absorbing and, and it's much easier to make sense of Kathy and Claire's problem page or a photo story than this sort of strange, whimsical, odd <laughs> comic thing going on in Jackie. But that was an equally important part of its of its voice, I think. And again, you know, something like Smash Hits gets a lot of credit for that. And things like Blue Jeans and Jackie and My Guy are just seen as the dregs but actually i think jackie was had a bit more about it it wasn't just to do with kind of being obsessed with acne <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know uh, all of that it, there was like odd stuff about quite interested in the smiths as well and obsessed with brookside and <laughs> which at that point was you know quite socially progressive and interesting so they'd have, they'd have like a whole special issue on brookside and you know all the different stuff going on in it so i've got a lot from reading jackie and i always used to look forward to the summer special which was like a bumper issue of it that you'd have to save for your holidays to kind of read then you wouldn't want to like sneak it early because then you wouldn't have anything to read when you're actually off on your hold so it had its moment and then you know you you sort of think oh no i should be reading you know just 17 and this so you you bid a fond farewell to jackie but actually it was it was very inventive and and slightly odd and quirky and strange and i i appreciated that about it because those things don't always get given a space in kind of adolescent girls culture so it was it was good to see that even though i, I still don't know what a mustard mine was about is this phenomenon a bit like the thing that always bothers me is you know you say the 70s jackie gets remembered but the 80s doesn't to me mm. it's like the way people talk about the old gray whistle test they don't talk about whistle test which is what it was in the 80s when it had you know all the lo-fi american bands it had early hip-hop on it had the smiths regularly and that mm. was what meant something to me and you 
you know, you, whenever there's an anniversary, a retrospective, you see, you know, the usual not that hairy anymore, hairy suspects from the radio going on about how great little feet were. And I think that, that, that means nothing to me. What about a camper van Beethoven were on? <laughs> Yeah, no, I, and it should be as much like Mark Allen in a big shirt as yes. um, Harry Bob, Harry Whiskey Bob in his in his sweaters. So, yeah, no, I, I know. I mean that that kind of around that point on BBC Two, around kind of six o'clock, was pre-Death Two, which I think is when Whistle Test was kind of reinventing itself. It was a really interesting spot because some nights you'd get like a George Formby film <laughs> and then other nights you'd get Whistle Test. I feel that that kind of bizarre, long after Aubrey had finished pushing his wheel down the road, what do you watch around that <laughs> that spot? And yeah, the, the sort of random diet of strangeness on BBC Two around that time. I sort of think that was absolutely formative in, in my film education. Mostly George Formby, I think, yeah. OK, well, your next choice, I'm fairly sure, A, I'm fairly sure I've identified who this is, and B, I'm fairly sure he wouldn't have either been profiled in Jackie or turned up on Whistle Test. Let's hear, if here is the right word, him in action. Okay, that was a gentleman called Chris Cremo on the Paul Daniels show in the mid-80s. Melanie, was this the man who juggled blocks on variety shows? <laughs> Chris Cremo, was that his name? Right. Again, I thought, I'm not going to look for this. On Although, how would I look for this? You know, man juggling block. <laughs> I watched a lot of TV as a kid. I still watch a lot of TV. And there was an awful lot of variety shows on that involved cabaret acts of various kinds. And I remember the man who juggled the blocks very, very clearly. And he'd make occasional appearances on, you know, I don't think, I don't know if he ever made the Royal Variety performance, but certainly, yeah, on Paul Daniels, on other random shows where they'd have some juggling or acrobatic acts. I just remember attempting to replicate his act with, um, <laughs> Oxo boxes. <laughs> you remember those little Oxo ones that used to have the Oxo cubes in? So kind of small boxes. I, I got some of those from the cupboard and I attempted to replicate the majesty of Chris Cremo. <laughs> Was that his name? It didn't work. I mean, I've never been able to juggle. I'm not the most dexterous people. I, I found I found him quite mesmerising, and he seemed to be. He was a bit like um, a bit like Billy Dainty, and a bit like Norman Collier, and a bit like that man that used to this like Italian guy that used to transform his clothes into like a hundred different outfits, who used to occasionally appear on Des O'Connor. These kind of very niche acts that would kind of turn up every now and again, and were completely mesmerising, like Norman Collier's. Mind in the windows, <laughs> or <laughs> your microphone's not working. And Billy Dainty's at, which just seemed to involve him strutting about. That <laughs> was like brilliant. Not quite. It's like sort of a bit of Maxwell, but without any jokes, just walking about. But I thought he was brilliant, and you know, I put the man with the blocks in that company. Just this, you know, absolutely honed, perfected act, very specific. You know, you wouldn't want to try and be another person with blocks competing with him because in the world of blocks he was 
he was the king and he could do all kinds of things with the blocks he would you know catch them throw them up juggle them he obviously looked at juggling and thought what is juggling missing what can i bring to juggling i know blocks and and then he really went with that and and did a marvelous job and then at some point you know those kinds of shows weren't on so much and so he he kind of vanished from my life and i don't really know what became of him well there was that era where there were all these like you say really niche specialized acts who just existed in the middle bit of variety shows and that was all you knew about them so there were people like tom noddy everyone's scratching their head at that but when they say he was the bubble man Everyone will oh, remember yeah. that, where he, at the end he covered himself in a huge bubble. There was Brody Fry, the electric man, who no one remembers, who did, like, <laughs> tricks with electric shocks and sparks and so on. He had really dangerous stuff to be showing kids, but oh the main thing I remember about him was he was really camp, and also, I still remember this to this day, you know when they had the Red Triangle on Channel 4, which I was obsessed with at the time, where they put it in the corner of contentious films? Yeah. He did the slot in the middle of something once, where he got two volunteers to kiss, and he stopped a red triangle on the camera i love that that was brilliant and yeah there was alfredo who shot ping pong balls out of his mouth but all these people yeah. once those sort of shows fell from favor that was it they were gone yeah i mean i i wonder you know if if you came in at the end of that whole i mean it, it must just be it's not in our tv culture so much anymore except on britain's got talent you know yes. but on, on, on online you know like that guy with the you know bits of cloth that he removes in interesting and surprising ways to reveal you know just the crockery left over i mean that he is the the modern inheritor of the man with the blocks tradition you know i'm gonna do one weird thing really really well would tom noddy be an influencer now <laughs> i don't know maybe i mean maybe you'd have Lots and lots of followers and acolytes, and it's <laughs> all been different. And the man with the blocks would probably be selling his own range of blocks, wouldn't he? That you could buy and use at home instead of me having to improvise with some OXO boxes, which frankly didn't produce the results I was hoping for. Um, I could have bought branded blocks, <laughs> the Chris Cremo kids, and had an entirely different career. It could have all been very different. <laughs> well, it's a shame he didn't because I've looked up Chris Cremo and he's still performing. And he still does massive high-profile gigs. He does Vegas. He does all oh. the, you know, the Eastern European circus festivals. He's yeah. still, you know, really successful. He's got, you know, his own site, his own branded material and so on. But there are two amazing things in his biography which really leapt out of me. One, his father was a juggler who taught him juggling by post. He sent him letters with instructions in. He would not teach him in person. And two, he's married to Russian hula hoop artist Yelena Larinka. Now, this man is living the dream. He, I mean, he's completely committed to the, <laughs> the cabaret stroke circus life, isn't he? Wow. A hula hooping wife and a dad who teaches you juggling by post. <laughs> I mean, he, he was born to do it, wasn't he? I'm, I'm, glad, he's, I'm glad he's okay. I mean, I, I feared he would have, like, tried to escalate things with bigger and bigger blocks and would end up being crushed by like, <laughs> an enormous concrete block that he attempted to... to I'm, I'm glad he's alive and well and, and still chucking his blocks around. Maybe I can try and see him. Okay, well, if you do get to go and see him, I hope you can find some of your last choice to apply before you go. I've no idea what I'm going to put here. It'll be something about coffee, so... See you on the other side. Pra quem faz um bom café, bem quentinho como a gente quer. Ah, mas que gostoso que é. Parabéns, parabéns. Pra quem não se acha, não. 
Christmas. Okay, no way you're linking that properly. Melanie, Rimmel Coffee Shimmer. Probably around the same time I was reading Patty's World and Jackie and Mustard Mind and all of that stuff. You sort of start to make your first forays into the, the fraught world of like, cosmetics. And, and bear in mind, this is like the sort of early 80s or sort of mid 80s. Um, so you've got you know, whatever's in the, the Avon book, which... It's limited under a lot of pink eyeshadow, which is always an unwise move, but they were promoting that quite heavily at one point. Rimmel, obviously still going strong, well-known brand. They had this range of frosted lipsticks <laughs> called the Shimmer range. And uh, the ones I remember are the pink Shimmer, which was a kind of iridescent, you know, Glenis Barber in Dempsey and Makepeace. Yes, yeah. So kind of frosted tips, you know, very blonde hair, lots of blue mascara, kind of electric blue mascara, and then this kind of very pink lipstick. I think she was probably using Rimmel Pink Shimmer. And then there was Coral Shimmer, which was a kind of, you know, pinky, orangey, reddy colours. Slightly nicer, although not helped by being very kind of slightly kind of chucked a load of uh, sort of slippery glitter all over your gob. It's, you know, it's not terribly flattering. And if it gets on your teeth, but, you know, forget it. And then perhaps the most hideous of all, coffee shimmer, which is a kind of beigey, brown, twinkly, frosty. Imagine someone had dropped a cappuccino on the floor in the middle of winter and then it froze. <laughs> Someone had kind of scraped it up and turned it into a lipstick. That was that was coffee shimmer, which I had. Um, and it made your teeth look awful. It made you look like a corpse. But for some reason, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Like a lot of these kind of cosmetic choices, it's, it's what everybody else is, is wearing. So you go along with it. So, yeah, at least for some part of the 1980s, I had a kind of beige iridescent mouth. <laughs> my own choice and then one day obviously thought what the hell am I doing I need to stop this right now but then you know the idea of the beige lipstick kind of carries on for for quite a while and it's it's not an easy color to wear beige on your mouth just generally a bad idea did it actually taste of coffee though no sadly not it wasn't like those those lip glosses that with the little rollerball on that used to actually taste of apple or cherry or uh, no this was entirely disgusting (laughs) (laughs) benefits from it at all it was just uh it it was just the color of it um and the idea that you'd have some kind of shimmering brown I just can't think of anyone in the public eye who wore it. I'm trying to think at the moment. You know, because obviously a lot of smash hits covers and so on are burnt into my mind. But I can't think of any... Not even Kim Wilde messed about with it. And her her lips are sometimes ridiculous colours. No, I think if if it's, like, not even Kim Wilde, (laughs) you know, like, difficult territory. Yeah, I mean, the pink shimmer obviously had Glynis Barber as a sort of primetime ambassador she was probably wearing a higher end version of it and i think it was probably a mistake at the rimmel factory that they then thought ah just you know <laughs> get out somebody there. spilled Someone some coffee wine. on the pitch and they went yeah yeah that's the color i meant yeah that'll do avon used to sell this this kind of brown twinkly thing in a pot that was supposedly all the makeup that you would need so you just kind of mix it in different ways and then you could use it as powder 
as eyeshadow, as lipstick, as blush. And actually, I mean, it seemed like, wow, it's the future. A bit like Rise and Shine. Wow, it's the future. But actually, it just looked like you'd rolled in some mud. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I think they anticipated the whole bronzer trend of, you know, putting lots of kind of fake tan on yourself. And But yeah, this idea that this magical one-pot makeup would answer all your, your makeup needs. And, you know, it just, yeah, it just looked very, very bad. But they used to do some, you know, very peculiar makeup duos. So they'd, they'd do, like, electric blue and cerise pink as eyeshadows, uh, which you were meant to wear together, uh, which I think is a look that Pat Butcher adopted, sort of a bit less <laughs> <laughs> um, they were at the van. I don't think she was a great then, brand spokeswoman, was she? And then there was one that was a bright yellow eyeshadow, and a, what was that teamed with a bright orange? I think so. You could put kind of yellow on your eyelid and then orange above up to your eyebrow. And this, I don't know what this was meant to do, but I think it was meant to look kind of cool and edgy and modern and vibrant. And it's just. I mean, when they can't make the models look nice, you know you're onto a loser. It's sounding to me, those combinations sound like the kind of filters that they apply to Michael Bay films, <laughs> you know, the colour palettes. <laughs> so if they tried that on an 80s British film, some of the cast would just disappear. <laughs> Probably better. I mean, maybe they should just daub them all in coffee shimmer and, you know, disappear. <laughs> it was the sort of predecessor of green screen, you know, just... <laughs> cover everybody in that and you can project anything onto it but yeah it would it would kind of make your mouth disappear and then you probably have to add some pink shimmer over the top and um, outline it with a lip pencil that was another thing so to have a different color lip pencil around the outside of your mouth and then fill in the middle with coffee shimmer or whatever i think that that kind of that gathered a bit more pace sort of towards the end of the 80s or 90s again it just pretty bad idea i mean i can't help feeling there's some terrible misogynist plot to you know make us all look absolutely dreadful and humiliated i was gonna say it sounds like styling tips from test card g <laughs> 50 shades of beige for brown I, I mean i could have saved some of the rise and shine and just rubbed that all over my face <laughs> drinking it so all brown and orange and uh, and all, all hideous. Well, if you did that, you'd probably be president by now. Melanie, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Not on your telly by Tim Worthington. From fish to fun to ski boy, the ultimate guide to the TV that time forgot. Find out more at timworthington.org. <laughs>